Tony Giaventu from the Condominium Homeowners Association will join us in a few minutes to talk Airbnb, smokers, developers putting pressure on Stratus. What does it mean to liquidate? New legislation. There's lots to talk about with Tony, and we'll try and take some calls too. Our regular drop-in, Todd Talbot from Love It or Listed Vancouver, talks about market value, the all-important asking price. How do you get there? His insight on pricing strategy later on. And John Meyer with this story, what we're talking about on Vancouver Real Estate Today. Joined now by Brian Yu, a senior economist with Central One Credit Union. And uh, good morning and welcome to the program. And good morning. Brian, you're out with a, a recent report. I wonder if uh, just to start off for our listeners, we can um, just hit on some of the highlights of this report and uh, what you guys looked at for the latest quarter. Uh, well, for the report, we, we did a outlook for the 2016-2018 uh, period for the uh, housing outlook. Uh, and what we're expecting to see is a, a very robust environment uh, provincially, but largely driven by uh, the overall conditions in the Metro Vancouver as well as the Vancouver Island uh, market. Uh, we're expecting the Greater Vancouver area to show uh, strong growth this year in terms of overall sales and the prices, uh, a median price is climbing about 13% uh, for the whole year. I know there, there's a lot of talk about how hot the, the housing market is in uh, Metro Vancouver. Um, when we go outside of, of the city of Vancouver, where are the areas in your report that you're seeing the biggest uh, growth in terms of uh, sales? Uh, well, we are looking at uh, essentially uh, metro regions. But what we're seeing in the overall um, metro Vancouver area is that there is there has been a growth uh, around the region as a whole. There, there's essentially all areas are showing strong growth as well as strong sales. Um, and when we're looking at the types of product, primarily this is uh, the sale. The price growth is largely in the, in the detached market uh, and the single family product. Uh, while we are seeing some uh, acceleration now in some of the uh, uh, the townhome as well as the condo. Uh, sectors as well. Obviously, people are selling their homes if the market's hot. Where, where are people going to? Oh, well, we don't look at uh, where they're within the Metro Vancouver area, but those who are uh, selling out of uh, the Vancouver area, we are seeing some movement away from the region as a whole. Uh, and we are looking at some higher interprovincial numbers coming going into the uh, Vancouver Island area. And anecdotally, we're also uh, hearing from our credit union members that there is some uh, increased interest in areas like the Sunshine Coast as well as um, Nanaimo and other Vancouver Island uh, types of um, uh, regions. Yeah, I see uh, monthly uh, growth was, was very strong in Chilliwack. Can you talk a bit about that, Brian? Yeah, I think it's a very similar type of a pattern right now. In the Chilliwack, when we are looking at the uh, the impact of higher prices in the Metro Vancouver region, we see a radiating of demand outwards uh, into the Fraser Valley, Abbotsford Mission, and Chilliwack. Uh, and what we're expecting to see in that is that the uh, the Fraser Valley as a whole uh, will also be, uh, again, sharing in, in this overall uplift in uh, in sales. We have the Fraser Valley having about an actual stronger 23 percent growth in resale transactions this year uh, with the uh, the pricing up about uh, six to seven percent so it is another not quite as strong as Metro Vancouver but we are seeing growth in those regions as well Brian in this report uh, it says uh, sales really more than absorb the new supply can you talk a bit about what that means uh, well essentially what we have is a very low inventory environment in the uh, in the Metro Vancouver area um, what we haven't seen in this price run-up has been a, a very large increase in the number of new listings. In fact, they've actually been pretty uh, pretty low um, compared to previous uh, types of patterns. Um, and what's happening, in our view, is that a lot of the condo buyers from recent years aren't able to move up uh, because they haven't gained a lot of equity. And at the same time, single-family uh, single or detached ho- uh, homeowners um, are 
holding off on listing, even though they're seeing very strong price gains, because there's not a lot of other uh, act, uh, other uh, inventory or new built in their areas that they can move into. Um, so as a result, this momentum that's being driven on the demand side is hitting this, this especially shortage of inventory in the market, uh, and that's driving up that prices uh, quite uh, strongly across the region. Again, we're speaking with Brian Yu, a senior economist with Central One Credit Union here on Real Estate Today on CKNW. Um, Brian, can can you, you know, you do these forecasts, you look at all the numbers and the data. Was there was there numbers or, or stats that that jumped out that uh, have have changed dramatically over uh, previous forecasts? Well, I, I think that uh, for our forecast, we did up, we did revise higher, essentially our outlook for the pricing as well as sales. Uh, the, the amount of demand that we're seeing in Metro Vancouver um, is, is very strong. If we look at uh, the resale numbers, they're actually well above our cycle highs from the mid-2000s. Um, and that is reflective of the fact that there is a pretty strong um, um, employment growth environment right now in Metro Vancouver. We're trending around 4% year-over-year year in terms of uh, job growth. We also saw uh, are seeing moderate growth in population, low mortgage rates, and we also can't discount that um, aspect of the potential foreign, some foreign buying, especially with that low Canadian dollar helping to uh, make Canadian as well and Metro Vancouver real estate quite um, um, quite desirable in terms of as a as a as an investment. And, and just lastly, Brian, if you can give our listeners kind of a takeaway or a, or a headline to, to take with them after this show of of, of what really uh, the conclusion is uh, with the, the results from this forecast. I think for now, uh, right now, the market is very hot. Um, there's a very little inventory, and uh, and that suggests to us that there is going to be upward momentum in overall pricing conditions. Uh, for a lot of buyers, that's going to mean that the single detached home, if not already being priced out, that is becoming um, un- unavailable, unaccessible for many buyers. And what people have to be looking for is maybe changing some of the or recalibrating the uh, expectations and looking at the, de- the uh, townhome and duplex market as well as the condo market going forward. Brian, you a senior economist with Central One Credit Union. Uh, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Next, we'll be joined in studio by Tony Giaventu of the Condominium Homeowners Association. Strata Life or Strata Strife on Vancouver Real Estate Today on News Talk 980 CKNW. Tony Giaventu is the executive director of CHOA. He's an author, broadcaster, speaker, educated. Currently, he serves as a member of the Real Estate Council of BC's independent advisory group to examine real estate practices in BC. Nice to have you back in studio at CKNW. Thanks, Ian. It's a pleasure. An interim report was issued by the advisory group, and that's been widely covered. The tougher penalties, a possible forfeiture, a bigger than big commission, stiffer fines, more transparent oversight, May I say blah, blah, blah. (laughs) No offense, because the final report and the recommendations contained uh, therein will come out sometime in early June. So let's, if we may, and I think you'll be agreeable, put that aside, and we'll get you to come back at some later date to talk about that. Uh, So with that aside, uh, let's move on to the things that you're involved with, namely your role as Executive Director of CHOA, Condominium Homeowners Association. Could there be a shortage of things for you to do these days? Uh, With 31,000 strata corporations, uh, changing laws, changing liquidation laws, the day-to-day conflicts between personal use of property, I don't think so. Our our offices, our phones are ringing off the wall constantly. It, it's not a week that doesn't go by that somebody won't say, did you see what Tony wrote in this publication? Because how many 
publications are you in now? Uh, well, we do the concurrent program uh, column runs in the province and Times Colonist, but also runs in 24 and other papers in the province. And sure. So I think as of last week, we were looking, it's now over 1,200 columns since wow. I started in 2002. Wow, that's a lot of ink. Um, it's a great column because so many people are looking for answers to situations that they find themselves in. And when you realize that your problem at your strata is shared by other people and you get that relief through your information, it, it really goes a long way. Uh, so with that, I want to open up our phone here. If you have anything going on at your strata that uh, perhaps Tony can help you with, why not uh, give us a call? 604-280-9898 or star 9898 if you're mobile. You won't have to wait until next week's column comes out. So Number one on my list of questions is Airbnb. Uh, a lot of people have been talking about it lately. There's much debate. Some people love it. Other people hate it. Um, it has an impact on the overall economy. We know that. But it, a lot of people are also concerned that it's got an effect on housing stock, affordability. And, and for our purposes here today, what is the impact of Airbnb on strata properties? It depends on the property, but Airbnb is a short-term commercial use of property. So it's like running a hotel, essentially, um, out of your private residence or residences. Uh, in some circumstances, it doesn't seem to be a disruption in buildings because an owner might own one or two units in the building. They live in the building. They have Airbnb or short-stay use of their units. The Strata Corporation hasn't passed a bylaw about it. So they're there to control what happens with parking and visitors and access to the buildings. Uh, when you have an on-site owner who is hands-on with their guests, very few problems arise and the Strata Corporation works out well with it. The problems that are pitching up is individuals who own three or five units, mm. don't live in the building, they have a drop key system for access, mm-hmm. um, and they are absent. So all of the problems that are associated with lost keys, security breaches, parking issues that arise, misuse of the common facilities, noise um, violations, the owner themselves is not actually on the site at the building to be able to address those problems as they come up. That's where we start to see a lot of the conflicts that are popping up for people. Yeah, I had a friend who said uh, uh, they had noticed a lot of activity in a, in a unit, a condo, and everybody thought on that floor thought, well, there's a drug dealer living there because there's a lot of people coming and going. Yeah. Turned out it was Airbnb, uh, Airbnb. Airbnb. And most buildings aren't zoned for its use. Short-term commercial use like hotels or Airbnb um, or a B&B practice uh, aren't within most of the building's um, designation within most municipalities. So, so it becomes a local bylaw, a municipal bylaw issue. Uh, but for strata corporations, it's a business activity bylaw. It's not a rental bylaw. Uh, and one of the problems with rental bylaws, conventional rental bylaws, bylaws, especially in newer buildings, people are going to be exempt from them because of the owner-developer exemptions. So if you amend or modify your rental bylaws to try and deal with Airbnbs, the owners are just going to come to you and say, hey, wait a minute, you know what? I'm just exempt from this bylaw anyhow because of my owner-developer exemption. So if you want to deal with business practices in your building, and it's not just Airbnbs, uh, we have some buildings that have escort services in them as well that create some colorful and interesting challenges. Uh, you know, if you're wanting to deal with business practices in buildings and deal with the security issues, deal with the access issues, mm-hmm. you need to have a separate structured bylaw that closely focuses on those and not deals with them as rentals. So what happens if something goes wrong? Who's responsible? Who pays? Well, the owner of the Stratolot is ultimately going to be responsible. The difficulty is, you know, you end up with an elevator that's trashed or you end up with a garage right. gate that's been damaged because somebody drove into it or you end up with a, you know, a stand post in the in the parking area that's been knocked over something. If there's no witness and there's no evidence, uh, what's the likelihood of being able to find out who the perpetrator was 
And if it's a visitor that you have no identity of, how do you know they're connected to the Airbnb? That's one of the one of the challenges that people are having. The other the other challenge is you get three or four Airbnbs happening in a building, your visitor parking is gone. Yeah. Right? And if they're if they're traveling and not using vehicles or rentals or not driving, then you're fine. But you get a, a few units in your building and they're intended for visitors and not intended for overnight stays. Right. right. Okay. And if if they are being used by Airbnb, what recourse does a, a an owner have? Well, it's it's difficult if the strata can't monitor them. So stratas have to now look at more innovative parking passes and parking systems and allocation of them and how much use and access there is, time periods, how many hours they can stay. You'll see in some buildings now that visitor parking is actually restricted to four or six hours uh, because of this reason. That's um, an idea. It, it kind of stopped the overnight stays of the Airbnb users that were kind of gone underground. So what to watch for now with Airbnb? Where is this going to go? It'll be interesting to see what happens with Airbnb. Uh, one of the things that um, I, I found interesting was we, we have we have advocates talking about Airbnb. Yeah. Um, they're the promoters and the um, entrepreneurs of Airbnb. That's right. why they're advocating it. They're not living in the problems that people are dealing with. They're cashing uh, in. They're cashing in and they're <laughs> and cashing in online on a large capacity basis. Yeah. Uh, and individual investors who are just buying up units, it's much more lucrative to use your unit as an Airbnb than it is as a rental unit. Absolutely. You start looking at the lists of Airbnb available within Vancouver alone, not Metro Vancouver, just Vancouver alone. And you have to start asking how many of those units are no longer in the rental pools. That's right. Right. And so we have, and, and they were once Do available. We know? Are affordable. those numbers available? Do you know? Uh, we look at them and monitor them on a weekly basis, but they, they vary at any given time to, um, between 1,100 and 2,800 uh, that really? are available. And what's, and, what's, the, what's the percentage of stock then uh, against rental stock? Uh, that's a hard number to figure out because no. we don't know how many units are actually available in sure. the rental stock. But but still, that's you take a thousand units off the it's market. Significant. It, it will have an impact on our our um, local rental economy, right? Yeah. And that's that's one of the problems that we're facing. Well, the sharing uh, economy is something that we're supposed to get used to, uh, and perhaps we will in time. We're going to have to come up with some answer to some of these problems. Well, it's also lucrative or beneficial for people with the high housing um, prices. You know, if you've spent seven hundred thousand for a condo and you have a big mortgage um, and you can you can run a bare airbnb out of it two or three days a week and still either be the resident or you might be working somewhere else living there on the right. weekends if you if you can manage to do that on a regular basis it goes a long way to helping your housing yeah, I'm, affordability I'm making notes thank you yeah yeah exactly <laughs> morning john how are you i'm good thank you yeah, how are go, you good go ahead to tony giaventu right um i've been living in my condo for 13 years now and it's um, the building is 33 years old. I've had a railing around my patio for all the time I've lived there. And as far as I know, the railing has been there um, for the 33 years that the building has been in existence. The Strata Council has come in, removed the railing, and deemed my patio area um, common property now. And there's an exit door that just goes uh, less than an arm's length away from where my patio entry doors are. So I've lost all my privacy and security. I just had actually one of my bikes stolen off my patio a couple of weeks ago. Okay, so, so we're getting the drift here. Do you have a question? Yeah. Um, are they allowed to do that? Just um, change the, um, I guess, designation from limited common property to common property like that? 
You know, it's interesting, John, a lot of people get the terms limited common property and common property confused with the right of use, not re- not necessarily with designation. Uh, okay. You have to look at the registered strata plan first to see if the area was actually designated as limited common property, or if at some point in the history of the strata, the strata actually filed a three quarters vote amendment to create your area as limited common property. But limited common property is still common property. It's just for the exclusive use of that owner. If it was limited common property on the plan that the developer created, it could only be changed with the unanimous vote of the strata. If the strata created it as limited common property, they're still going to have to go back to the owners for three quarters vote at a general meeting to change that. Sounds though, because you have a, an exit that may be a fire exit or emergency exit, that you might have a fire safety requirement involved as well. Um, but owners also have some long-term beneficial privileges of a, you know, kind of a status quo. We've had this for the last 20 years. Uh, now you're changing its use um, significantly. We, uh, we need to um, discuss whether this is fair or whether this is a fair access to the property. Um, we, you know, another side of looking at this, um, it's, we often see this with people that have balcony enclosures on buildings. Bought into the unit, there were 17 balcony enclosures, mine had a balcony enclosure, and now the building needs a major repair. Those balcony enclosures, for the most part, were probably all non-authorized alterations. Mm-hmm. And when that building has to be repaired, they all have to come off. And, when, and if they're going to go back on, they're going to have to be an authorized alteration that odds are the building code isn't going to permit or the local government isn't going to permit. So That's a real mess change. for, for stratas right now. I mean, we can shift gears a little yeah. bit into that yeah. whole concept of, of having alterations that were either not recorded, not authorized. Or there's absolutely no record on, on board at all. What do you do? You, so you remove them. Uh, do you have to apply for city permit? Uh, how does that all work? You know, we see them on balcony enclosures and we also see them in townhouse complexes mm-hmm. where people have built um, solariums or sheds or things like that attached to buildings. Sure. Uh, both of those are uh, non-conforming alterations. They frequently don't aren't permitted. When your building goes through a major renovation, you're going to need a building permit for the renovation, which means those non-conforming alterations have to come off. And if somebody wants to put them back on, they're going to need A, the consent of the strata. They're mm-hmm. going to ha- probably have to assign an agreement that they're going to take responsibility for any costs related to it now and in the future. But more importantly, they're going to need a permit from the city that meets current code, which is very difficult difficult to achieve, especially in older buildings, because the balcony areas aren't sprinklered. What happens when they jump up and down and say, look, you know, we ha- I've, ha- I've had this shed attached to my townhouse for 10 years. In fact, when I moved in, that shed was there. Yes. There's no paperwork. There's no, yeah. no record of it. What yeah. happens? You've had the privilege of a non-conforming shed for your use for the past 20 years. And it's, it's but over. at this time, <laughs> as a result of the renovation and current, and current code upgrades, um, we can't permit it to continue. And that's what happens. You know, non, non-conforming structures on stratas, rooftop decks. You know, you, you look mm-hmm. at sa- um, uh, satellite images of municipalities and you see these rooftop decks that were never permitted. Uh, when the building goes through a major construction phase, they're often ordered to be removed, or the upgrade is so expensive, nobody can afford right. to do it. That's going to be a tough sell for, for a lot of strata corporations to go to people when they're doing a, a major renovation or a siding uh, replacement, uh, rain screen, what have you, and then they've got to go to these people that have had that privilege and that enjoyment, 
and then suddenly told, hey, the party's over now. Well, people think that it was common property before we did the alteration. So before we put the solarium onto the back of the townhouse, that area was common property. Or before we enclosed the balcony, it was common property. Um, But then we enclosed it so it was ours. Well, the reality is it's still common property. Mm -hmm. And so the problem is, is that when it has to come off or be modified, the the other owners now have to pay for it. They have to pay for that removal and modification because it's common property that they're modifying. Let's talk about smokers when we come back. That's been a real issue. Uh, Breathing in your neighbor's smoke, and sometimes it's tobacco, sometimes it's marijuana, sometimes it's just their barbecue. Tony Giaventu, Executive Director of CHOA, is my guest today. My name is Ian Power. This is Vancouver Real Estate Today on News Talk 980 CKNW. Todd Talbot from Love It or Listed Vancouver will be on with us uh, in less than half an hour, about 20 minutes from right now. We're talking to Tony Giovento. He's in studio, the executive director of CHOA, and that is the Condominium Homeowners Association, which is a great organization throughout British Columbia. If you live in a strata corporation, uh, this is the go-to organization, and Tony is their leader. And one of the things that seems to, and we are taking calls, by the way, and we'll sneak in as many as we can, 604-280-9898, or star 9898 if you're mobile this afternoon or this morning. Uh, we welcome your input as well. One of the things that seems to come up a lot these days is smoke, and it's not just cigarettes, Tony, but marijuana. It's people burning, over-burning, over-cooking, whatever meat substance they can find. Um, so how do you decide uh, these so-called reasonable expectations? You know, those who smoke, are, are they infringing upon uh, your space if you're a non-smoker? Is this an easy thing to tackle? Well, it's a nuisance. So, you know, do I, I have a right to use my lot in a way that I'm not going to be exposed to the lifestyle of other people that creates a nuisance for me. So if, I'm, if I have a chain smoker living next door and we have some air tightness issues in the building, then I'm going to be living with it as well. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be dealing with, you know, the contamination of their lot, my lot, other adjacent lots, uh, people who smoke on their balconies at three o'clock in the morning while people are sleeping up above them with their windows open. Right. You know, we, don't, we have a lot of buildings uh, across the province because of our moderate climate that don't have air conditioning. So the warm weather comes out, people sleep with their windows open at night. And it's um, one of the benefits that we have of living on the coast. But um, add cigarette smoke, marijuana smoke, uh, your barbecue. Uh, people even use their fish smokers on their <laughs> on their patios and on their balconies and their again. I'm uh, taking notes. <laughs> uh, yeah, and their their apartments and their complexes and you know and then they're then they're just absolutely dumbfounded when somebody uh, comes to them and complains about it and. We're, if we're going to live in close proximity with each other, we have to have a little bit more respectful. Good case decision, though. Um, uh, in uh, uh, last month, um, that basically determined that an owner was not permitted to smoke in their strata lot. Um, there's yeah. a pending human rights application as to whether that this is a human rights issue about addiction. Um, but I think the question that'll be asked around addiction is, what's the addiction? Is it smoking or is it nicotine? Well, right? this is interesting <laughs> because uh, I, I sit here and I'm listening to what you're saying, and I'm thinking I'm a, I'm a non-smoker and I'm I'm not a big fan of it at all. To to be honest with you. But at the same time, I, I appreciate somebody's want to have the, the right or the privilege or whatever it is to be able to smoke in their own place. So how, how do you find that balance? You know, it's when you start living in close, close proximity with each other, you start have to balancing out what the needs of the collective are as much as what individual rights are over property. And, and it's, a, it's a very fine balance as to how many of my personal property rights get infringed upon when I live in a strata uh, versus what's the collective interest. So, you know, noise, cooking odors. There's another issue that people really uh, flip over about. You sure. know, if somebody, who, yeah. you know, I, it's a dietary pleasure, but 
people who boil fish, the whole building pays for it, right? Uh, you know, and, and hey, wait a minute. Yeah, <laughs> but but it's um, you know, but it's it's a problem that everybody experiences, and smoking's a, an issue too. And it, it, strata's need to exercise a bit of accommodation for people that may have limitations or special well, needs. Well, you, right? you just said accommodation. I, I'm thinking, of what about the hostile neighbor that doesn't want wants no part of it? They, you know, like how dare you tell me how I can live my life? Well, they'll find they'll they're going to find themselves as a result of the case law. They're going to find themselves in the courts. They're going to end up being fined. They're going to end up with court orders um, ordering them to cease their activities, and they'll pay the price for that. Is and, this happening more? Are we seeing uh, these kinds of things where you're actually pissed off at your neighbor that you'll you'll try to take some action against them? I think we'll see it happen a lot more when the tribunal opens this fall. You know, civil resolu- resolution tribunal will have the authority to order owners, tenants, occupants, and strata corporations to do things or stop doing things. And so you're going to see quite a bit more. It's going to be much economically more accessible. It's much more timely. And the day-to-day disputes about what my owner is doing, you know, they're, they're simple things. You know, putting a, a piano on a common wall between two units and your kids get home at four o'clock and they pound away for an hour every day. Move the piano to an inter- internal wall so it reduces the noise as much as possible right. you know we, we have to accommodate each other in our lifestyles um, and in the same token we have to be tolerant you know people have to live people are thinking though you know i just spent 600 800 900,000 on my townhouse you know i'll be darned if you're going to tell me where to put my piano inside my own walls well, and that's a choice that you'll make. If what you're doing is causing a nuisance to one of your neighbors, then the strata has no choice. They will enforce the bylaws or the neighbor is going to ensure that they're enforced and exercise that. Price is um, it is kind of a, a weird thing these days, isn't it? You know, we used to talk about condos at 79.9, yeah. you know, going back. Uh, those condos today are selling for eight hundred, nine $900,000. Right. Yeah. And the value of the property, just because the property is higher value doesn't give me more property rights. Sure. Um, what about, can we take that as uh, another step? I mean, we can go in all kinds of directions with that, but the next step to me would be surveillance. Uh, what happens to townhouse complex or uh, uh, condo complexes where there's this want or this need or where cameras might already exist? Well, there was an interesting decision in the courts a few weeks ago that dealt with two individuals who were basically terrorizing and harassing their neighbors. And the strata fined them and they were doing everything from derogatory language to smearing dog feces on people's oh, property and attacking people. And uh, and so the strata owners banded together, got to court. Um, they have dealt with bylaw fines and they've dealt with orders for these individuals. Um, the interesting thing about this, though, is that Within this decision, um, the judge acknowledged that there was video surveillance that was used with respect to bylaw fines um, for smearing dog feces on people's um, uh, doors mm. and um, on carpets. Uh, so it was actually allowed as evidence. But video surveillance in buildings, there's, there's a variety of, of surveillance. So sure. the, the most common that we have is we have our interphone system at the front door. So we call it condo TV. Somebody can flick on the, the TV, see who's at the front door, decide to let them see in. See if they actually have a pizza in their hand. See if they actually have a pizza in their hand and if it's really something I want. So, so, but the next level is we do video surveillance now because we've removed away from keys for a lot of locations. We have fobs or cards, sure. right? Yeah. So we have electronically activated systems in buildings, which um, now have another level of surveillance because we now monitor who uses those doors and when they use right. them, right? So that's another level. And then the other level of surveillance is where we're conducting active surveillance by video camera of things like parking garages and elevators and mm-hmm. recreation centers. Um, corridors and hallways. Is there Um, any evidence to suggest that these cameras prevent crime in any way? Well, surveillance has has a way of checking and monitoring it if the 
if the surveillance system is intact and complete. Uh, but that's one of the challenges that strata corporations mm-hmm. have, right? You know, we have the chronic problem where people are breaking into our parking garage and breaking into all of our cars. Well, if you put two cameras in, it only takes five minutes for the crooks to figure out where the cameras are and what n- where not to go. Yeah, and uh, they've got their hoodie on. And they've got their hoodie on and they figure out ways of getting around it. So d- so does it stop it? Not necessarily. It, it's, a, it's hard to stop the outside problems from happening, uh, but it does check what happens on the inside. You know, okay. and it does give us some it, using it proactively, though, is going to be um, a problem with respects to can we actually legally use this surveillance um, as evidence that becomes a we're not there as the bylaw police. We're there as a responsive measure when there's vandalism or a problem. How can do we have any information that we can use to identify it? We've got to take a breath here. Tony Giaventu, executive director of CHOA, is my guest in studio. Ian Power for John Meyer. This is Vancouver Real Estate Today on News Talk 980 CKNW. Tony Giaventu is with me in studio. He's the executive director of CHOA, the Condominium Homeowners Association. We've only got a few minutes, so I want to blast through some calls, Tony. But first, uh, a big event coming up. It's the CHOA AGM and Strata Symposium on Wednesday, which is this Wednesday, May 4th, at the Italian Cultural Center on Slocan. Uh, are there any tickets available? There are just a few tickets available. Um, and there's a great afternoon session uh, with a kind of crazy AGM and six lawyers who are going to be dealing with uh, the finer points of issues like smoking and those types of issues and Airbnb and all that stuff. Good place to bring your questions. It's a great place to bring your questions. Yeah, and I know you bring in some real experts and some of these people that, uh, that really know their way around. And sometimes uh, when you're living in a strata situation, it's easy to feel lost and alone. And this is one of the great roles that CHOA has played. So uh, look forward to that event. Uh, and more information on your website? More information on the website. Call the office and they'll get you booked in. Morning, Brian. Are you there, Brian? Oh, hello there. I'm sorry. Somebody just cut me off on the road here. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you go ahead, please. Okay, yes. I was just down in my basement of a condo the other day, and I was talking to the president. I was going to buy myself an electric bike. And I and we have a poster. We have two big parking spots, each of us, where we down the condo, the nice and wide, and some of them have plugs. And so I was going to – I haven't got the bike yet, but I was talking about it because it's worth a bit of money. And I want to have a safe place for it. I'm talking about a room up in the second floor, and he says, oh, no, there's something new with this Choa thing. We can't have anything electrical above the garage level. Brian, Brian, I'm just going to cut you off for a second. We have a really poor connection, but I think we we kind of get just to what you're saying. So I want to get Tony to to feed back on that. Uh, so, Brian, you need to look at the bylaws of your strata to figure out what they're going to permit with respects to charging for uh, bikes, for electric bikes, uh, location, storage areas, those types of things. But generally in a parking area, if you have an underground parking area, uh, stratas try to uh, find a way of putting a secured parking facility in. But look at your bylaws. It's going to be a bylaw or a rule that is going to really control what's going to happen with your bi- with your bike, location, charging, all of those types of items. Curtis, you're up. Got a, Got about a minute here. Go ahead, Curtis. Hi. I, um, I'm i in a Bearland Strata with a, they got a five-foot fence in the back where it's supposed to be allowed a three-foot privacy screen. Um, I was on Strata Council when they approved it, but they only approved it uh, verbally. It, it didn't make the minutes, and now there's a whole new Strata Council. They want me to rip it down. So I don't know what my next step would be. 
well, when you when anybody has any alterations or anything that's installed onto a piece of property, you have to look at your bylaws. You have to look at the rules of the strata. Uh, if you're a bare land strata, though, uh, look closely to see whether the rules with respect to alteration of a strata lot apply and whether whether the conditions under the bylaws are rules with respect to the bare land. Well, when a bare land, it can't be a rule. It would have to be a bylaw because it applies to the strata lot. But look at the bylaws of your strata to determine what you're allowed to actually do to alter your strata lot in a bare land strata. And you might find that it's actually going to be fairly limited. Time is sneaking up, so I'm going to ask this question for Rose. She wants to know what happens when the strata won't respond to owners, published dates of meetings and that kind of thing. Well, that happens all the time. You know, um, it's one of the reasons why we're going to have a civil resolution tribunal because strata corporations don't comply with the act or their bylaws. It's going to be easier to get that done. Uh, she should request a hearing of the strata and formally ask those questions. The strata put it in writing. Put it in writing. Request a hearing. The strata then, after your hearing, has to respond to your questions in writing uh, within a week after your hearing. The other side is, if you have a strata that's not cooperating, it might be time for a different strata council. We got to go. Tony Giaventu, executive director of Choa the Condominium. Homeowners Association. We have a full phone board, so I'm sorry to have to leave people on the line. That means you have to come back. It's always a pleasure. Soon. Ian. Will you come back soon? And very soon. Okay, we'll take a break and then we'll come back with Todd Talbot. How do you find that market value? Some strategy from Love It or Listed Vancouver. That's next on Vancouver Real Estate Today on News Talk 980 CKNW. Todd Talbot is a regular guest to Vancouver Real Estate today, and we are so happy you're here to comment on some of the things that people are talking about today. And one of the things with the market being what it is, trying to determine market value. So how does a seller go about trying to figure out what's the asking price? Because you'll have some realtors who will want to go really aggressive, Mm -hmm. a little bit low in the hope of maybe starting a a bidding war, which seems to be happening everywhere, and perhaps not as much as we might think. But what is the formula that you like to recommend? So we're seeing you are alluding to pricing strategy, which I think comes after determining what is market value okay. or best trying to figure out how it is, um, how it's established. And one of the ways that I like to look at it is that market value is set basically by what an individual is willing to pay at a certain moment in time. Now, we can hypothesize about all kinds of different things, but at the end of the day, it's the person who's actually going to write the check or sign on the dotted line for a certain number. That is what establishes market value. And so we, when we're analyzing different properties, we look at all kinds of different data, and the best data is a comparable sold property because that's something that's actually happened. Now that data is lagging a little bit because you know these are these are statistics that's happened in the past whether it's one week old, one month old. Um, but there's other elements that I like to look at. Okay. First of all is active listings. Now a lot of people try and analyze market value by looking at an active listing, but that can be completely misleading as we've seen in the marketplace right now. There's tons of reports about houses selling for, you know, $750,000 over asking, a million dollars over asking. Now, does that actually comment on market value? I don't think so. Sometimes people can, you know, price it below market value in order to generate that bidding war. Sometimes people park it, uh, <laughs> price it above. The provincial assessment that comes into your, that's done in July and comes into your home later on, right. probably has less to do with your asking price than what's happening on your street, what's happening around the neighborhood. And and I think the number one place you're going to go is realtor.ca to figure that out. 
You can, absolutely. There's lots of information out there that people can, and, and people are online all the time now. And that information is readily available. Um, I think assessed value, again, is lagging behind the current market trends. Sure. There's other things that people need to consider. Um, one of the other elements that I like to look at is expired listings. Listings that didn't sell. We don't even talk about it much in this marketplace, mm-hmm. but there are properties out there that don't sell. And that tells you a lot about the price that they were trying to get. Overpriced, likely. Yeah, overpriced, likely. Now, there's other factors that play in, but um, you know, there's other adjustments that you need to make. You need to make adjustments for the actual property that you're looking at. There's adjustments you're going to make for things that you've done to the house, both positively and negatively. Um, I also think that there's an element that we can't analyze with statistics, mm-hmm. and that's motivation. So there's oftentimes price um, gets skewed a little bit by motivation. So if you have a seller who's on a tight timeline, they might be more motivated to sell that property faster, and they're willing to take a little bit less money, and that might be under market. Conversely, there might be a buyer who's moving to the city with their family, and they're under pressure to find a place. They're in a bidding war. And they'll pay. And they might Mm -hmm. pay a little bit more than market value. Funny you should say that, because I think the other thing, the scenario that paints out all the time, is when you have a seller, they've been in their house for 25 years, they raised their children there, they raised their dog there, they had their family Christmases there, so they've got this emotional tie to the house, and they think, my house is worth way much more than the neighbor who sold for a little bit less. Totally. And, and that is often the houses that you might see that don't make it to the well, sell. It's, it, it, it's a great point. First of all, emotions play a big part in this. And people often ask me what I think their property is worth. They also ask me what they think my property is worth. Ooh. And I answer it very simply. <laughs> I'm the worst person to ask <laughs> what my own property is worth because I actually think I undervalue my property because I know certain nuances maybe that I don't like about it. Sure. You know, so there's all kinds of emotions that get tied up in it. In order to truly analyze your property, you need to strip away the emotions and get somebody to look at it from a very critical standpoint to be able to analyze the data, to be able to analyze the house, and to be able to analyze the market um, the market activity at that moment in time. And I think one of the key things as well is making sure that you're talking to somebody who has a gut feel for what's going on today. What I see the realtor's role is to do all of the legwork and present all of the information as unbiased as possible. Lay it all out there and make sure that the homeowner is strongly educated to make a good decision about price. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, people have to remember that the real estate agent or your dad or your sister-in-law, they do not set the price. The homeowner is responsible for setting the price, and they get to choose. If the real estate agent or whoever you're looking to for advice says that your house is worth a million dollars, but you are determined to try and get 1.2 and you believe that you can do it, it's well within your prerogative to do that. It's also within your prerogative to price below that, uh, price below that. Again, realtor.ca, and I'm, I'm not the poster boy for them, by the way. But all of that, a lot of that key information to help you understand and do some of that legwork that you right. talked that the realtor should be doing for you as well puts you in the know. You can see what's happening in your neighborhood. What are like houses selling? And then 
from there, you can go and look at the upgraded kitchen or the upgraded bathroom and these sorts of things. What, how motivated are you? And perhaps the best use of a real estate agent is somebody who can take that emotion out of the equation and put you into a, a position where you have great perspective. Absolutely. There, there's also information that you cannot access as the public on Realtor.ca. So a real estate agent is going to have much more information. They're going to be able to pull up historical numbers for the neighborhood. They're going to be able to pull up uh, recently sold properties. They're going to understand certain nuances that aren't um, readily available to the general public. We've got to wrap up, but I want to know when it comes to how do you determine the market value, your listing price, what's the takeaway message? I think you need to uh, clarify your goal and your timeline because time plays a big part into it. And I believe that you should um, ultimately aim for the closest to market value as possible. Todd Talbot from Love It or List It Vancouver tomorrow. No, it's Monday. Today's Saturday, Monday night at 10 p.m on W Network. My thanks to Greg Schott, our technical producer. For John Meyer, my name is Ian Power. Stay tuned for CKNW Weekend and an interview with Jimmy Pattison, the 30th anniversary of Expo 86. This is Vancouver Real Estate Today on News Talk 980 CKNW.